Welcome to Cato Audio for April 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, John Stossel talks about why individuals succeed. Representative Kevin Brady asks for scrutiny over the Fed. Glenn Reynolds explains the higher ed bubble. Douglas Ollivant explores the continuing violence in Iraq. And author and columnist Megan McArdle talks about the benefits of failure. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Mandatory minimums used to be little more than a third rail issue, uh, challenging Republicans to uh, essentially appear soft on crime and that sort of thing, but it has effectively gone mainstream. And talking about that today, Tim Lynch, director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice, and Julie Stewart, founder and president of Families Against Mandatory Minimums. And it's worth noting, Julie is a former uh, Cato employee in uh, the media department uh, where I work. So uh, welcome, both of you. Thank, Thank you. you. So uh, just let's start with you, Julie. Uh, how has this issue changed? Uh, and and we're going to talk a little more broadly about criminal justice reform, but on the specific issue of mandatory minimums, what has changed in the, since the 80s and 90s? Well, let me just first back up and explain briefly what a mandatory minimum sentence is. And it, it's something that we've had since the founding of the nation, really, that um, there are over 100 mandatory minimum sentencing statutes on the books. And they are really um, – they reveal sort of Congress's attempt to deal with whatever the crime du jour was. So when you read this list from the 1790s, it's um, piracy gets you life in prison. And in the 1810s, refusal to hang a telegraph wire on your property got you six months in prison. So basically, Congress passes laws that say, you know, if you commit this crime, you do this much time. That's the mandatory piece of it. And the minimum, it's often not very minimum. Uh, life sentence is not so minimum. But um, So that is what a mandatory minimum is. A legislative body passes a law that says if you commit this crime, you're going to do that much time. No ifs, ands, and buts. doesn't matter what your motivation was, your culpability, any of that. So the laws that we have been fighting for the last uh, – since 1991 when I left the Cato Institute to start Families Against Mandatory Minimums are drug sentencing laws largely, but also gun sentencing laws and pretty much any mandatory minimum sentence that Congress has passed. So, But I've seen in the last year this amazing um, sort of movement toward reform of mandatory minimum sentences that I haven't seen really since 1994 when we got a sentencing bill passed in Congress. Tim? And so when a mandatory minimum is not in play, basically – it's up to the judge. The judge has lots of discretion to take all the circumstances of the case into account where he's going to decide what's appropriate for each individual defendant. That's correct. And in the federal system, there are federal sentencing guidelines that guide judges, but they're no longer mandatory. They're advisory. So a, a court can see that, well, even though it says I'm supposed to start with a 10-year sentence, you really were so you know, not very culpable, so we'll give you three instead. All right. I'll open this up to both of you then. What have we seen uh, states are leading the way here. And what what have we seen in states, in some cases, deep red states? Uh, what have we seen? Well, the states in many ways followed the federal government in the in the 80s. When the federal government passed mandatory minimums for drug offenses to, you know, crack down on drug kingpins, they also at the same time eliminated parole so that people who go to prison now federally get no parole. They do 85 percent of their time. So they get 15 percent good time, it's called, if they don't mess up in prison. Many states adopted that policy largely because the federal government was giving them money to do that. So states passed these Similar mandatory sentencing laws, no parole, build new prisons. The federal government was funding it. 
then the money dried up. So now the states have been stuck with these enormous prison populations, ridiculous um, budget-crunching costs of corrections, and have had to make changes to you know, make the budget pie work. So there have been great reforms led largely by the red states, South Dakota, Georgia, South Carolina, Texas. All of them just in the last year or two have reduced prison populations by different measures of sentencing reforms and letting some people out early, you know, putting people into drug treatment instead of prison, a variety of, a mix of, of reforms. So do you think it's the budgetary pressures that policymakers at the state level are facing that's kind of the driving force behind getting them to rethink their criminal justice policies? Yes, absolutely. I think that money Money started the states down this road, but it has moved beyond just a fiscal issue now. And I was at CPAC last week and uh, watched a governor, Rick Perry from Texas, on a panel on criminal justice with Grover Norquist, Pat Nolan, um, and Bernie Carrick, former commissioner of of police in New York, all agreeing on the fact that we need sentencing reforms, we need all kinds of reforms. And Perry specifically said, the one issue I agree with President Obama and Attorney General Holder on is sentencing reform. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. I think it's a combination of the budgetary pressure plus the intellectual critique that organizations like FAM and other organizations have been making against the mandatory minimums coming together with also a low crime rate, which is allowing these politicians, giving them the space they need to move in the direction of reform. I think that's absolutely right. And it was really refreshing to hear the members of that panel at CPAC talk about the you know, personal impact of having someone in prison or going to prison and how it has a ripple effect and how, you know, one year in prison is a very long time. And, you know, they, they had the, they did care about it as a, as a personal issue, not just a budget issue. So if, if we're to uh, try to boil down what sparked this, obviously states have been, have been making reforms, but at the federal level, there hasn't been a lot of reform, as you, as you noted, since 1994. So what, is, what has brought this about, Tim? Well, it's a couple of things, but I think Senator Rand Paul has kind of stepped forward uh, and has kind of led the fight against these mandatory minimums. And I think that's kind of surprised everybody on the political scene because for so long the lines had been drawn where the Democrats tried to raise some criticisms, but they were continually beat down by the, the old Republican argument that this is just another soft on crime policy that we don't want to go we don't want to go back to and Rand Paul has kind of like scrambled the politics uh, of this and maybe Julie wants to say more about what she's seen as far as the trends up there on Capitol Hill. Well, I think that's absolutely right that um, Rand Paul has had a terrific impact on bringing Republicans and conservatives along. He met with us as soon as he got into the Senate saying, I don't like mandatory minimums. I want to get rid of them and I want your help. And he has put a hold on bills that carry a mandatory minimum with them and has really annoyed other members of the uh, Senate uh, as he you know, keeps pure in his pursuit of no mandatory minimum sentences. But I think that he has provided some political cover and has, um, I mean, it really almost does break down sort of old guard, new guard in the, in the Senate at least that the Tea Party type uh, Republicans are supporting sentencing reform. Um, you know, the old guard, Senator Sessions, Senator Hatch, um, Senator Grassley, you know, they're not so so much in favor. Now, you're talking about old guard Republicans for the most yes. part here, but there are some old guard liberal Democrats who have, it it's appears at least, have been waiting in the wings for this sort of thing to uh, become bipartisan, I suppose. 
Well, Senator Leahy and Senator Paul introduced a bill this year called the Justice Safety Valve Act. Actually, it was in 2013. Um, and it is a great bill that would allow judges to have the discretion to sentence according to the culpability of the defendant, which, frankly, is a very American tradition. I mean, we, we pride ourselves on this great justice system. It's individualized justice. But boy, when you get in, into court and you've got a, a crime, you've committed a crime that carries a mandatory minimum sentence, that just goes out the window. But so, yes, Senator Leahy, Senator Durbin, they've both been very good about joining with Republicans, um, largely Tea Party Republicans, to introduce bills that uh, are moving through the Senate right now. And Mike Lee, of course, sponsoring with uh, Senator Durbin. And Senator Cruz on the same bill. Mm -hmm. And President Obama, around Christmas time, he issued a few pardons and commuted the sentences of a few people. So they've got that issue back in the news. I don't think he's been nearly as aggressive as he should be when it comes to commuting sentences because there's that disconnect between the Attorney General Eric Holder going out and talking about mandatory minimums and how bad they are and how much we have got mass incarceration. And here's an here's an area where the, the president can act on his own without having to fight through the Congress to get... Constitutionally, I might add. Right. He can act on his own and he could commute lots of sentences uh, and put a human face on these issues, and he just hasn't really done very much in that area. Do you think, uh, Julie, that Eric Holder? I mean, he's spoken about this several times now, uh, and President Obama are sort of playing catch up with, uh, for lack of a better uh, statement, Tea Party Republicans. I think that the administration was uber cautious in their first term, and when they got reelected. <laughs> he got reelected and everyone stayed in place pretty much, um, that the president and the attorney general have been much more outspoken in the second term. I think that the Republicans have provided the political cover that allows Attorney General Holder and probably the president to you know, step out more strongly. But I honestly do think that both those men care deeply about the fact that we have way too many people in prison. They're particularly concerned about people of color in prison. And the president, um, through his deputy attorney general, Jim Cole, has been asking for more cases for commutation to be sent to him. And we were actually invited into the Justice Department to talk to them about finding more lifers, people serving life without parole. These are, and we're talking nonviolent drug offenders largely, some even property offenders who are in federal prison and will die there unless the president grants them a commutation because they have no legal recourse. So we, you know, are happy to um, provide him with cases that uh, examples of people who deserve to get out. Let's talk about a little bit of the the function of mandatory minimums because they. They do. They provide, I believe, prosecutors with a great deal of leverage uh, when it comes to pressuring defendants out of going to trial, and uh, they're just costly to the system in general. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I, I, I'll say something and let Tim jump in. But to me, as a non-lawyer, the fact that you are punished for exercising your constitutional right to trial. And, and the, the, ra- the reason I say that is if the prosecution will say to you, well, if you plead guilty, we'll give you a you know, five-year sentence. But if you go to trial, we're going to smack you with everything we can possibly hang on you, and you're going to get a 15, 20-year sentence. It's almost, and it, it's it almost happens. An, it's almost an aggravating circumstance. That's why there are so few trials these days. Well, you, that's very well put for a non-lawyer. <laughs> I play one. <laughs> Our jury trials are, are, are fast diminishing in our system. They're only a, a, a tiny percent. Only A lot of Americans are shocked to learn that really only 3 to 4% of the cases 
in our systems go to trial. And you have to ask yourself why that is the case. And it's because these prosecutors have enormous leverage, as Julie said, to say, look, look, you can you can opt for a jury trial if you want to, but if you are found guilty, you are going to get 10, 15, 20 years. And so their own attorneys are urging them, you, look, you better plead guilty. Let's not roll the dice because of the enormous amount of jail time that you're facing. If you plead guilty, at least you'll be able to see your kids you know, when they graduate from college. But that may not be the case uh, if you roll the dice, go to trial, and are found guilty, and then you're facing these enormous mandatory minimum sentences. That's right. And um, there are a lot of them in Florida that are that are happening right now that we're fighting. And there's one in particular that is such an awful example, but um, sort of is one example of many people facing the same situation where this, this man named Orville Wallard had uh, a family. He worked at SeaWorld, and he and his wife and two kids lived in Florida. And one of his younger daughters was dating a boy that was very abusive. And the boy, came, um, he came home one day. Wallard came home one day. The boy had beaten up his daughter. She, she had a black guy. He was threatening Orville Wallard. So Wallard takes out his legal firearm, fires, says to the boy first, leave, leave, leave. He doesn't leave. So he takes out his gun. He shoots into the air, two warning shots. The boy leaves. Two weeks later, the boy re- reports him to the police. The police come and arrest Wallard and say, you're, you're you know, charged with aggravated assault. And Wallard's like, I was defending my family. I was protecting my family. Wallard goes to trial, though the prosecution offers him a three-year sentence. And he's like, I didn't do anything. Mm-hmm. So he goes to trial, and the jury finds him guilty under the letter of the law of aggravated assault. And the judge had no choice but to send him to prison for 20 years. Oh, my gosh. So he is currently in prison for 20 years, and he um, has been about spent about six years there. He's already he's lost a lot of his teeth. He's very jittery. Some gangs have beat up on him. So these are unbelievable stories that are happening every day. We're actually working in Florida to change that sentencing law. We're working with the NRA, and it's going very well. Um, and then we're going to try to get commutations for the people like Orville Wallard. Governor Rick Scott has to step up and, and help those people get a life back. Now, as we mentioned earlier, there are effectively two pieces of legislation in the Senate, the Leahy-Paul bill and the Lee-Durbin bill. Uh, What are the elements of those two pieces of legislation where there's overlap, where there's clearly common ground for making change to mandatory minimums? Well, FAM believes the better law is the um, Leahy-Paul bill because that is one that we helped them write, for one thing, but it also provides the, jo- the the court with discretion to sentence anybody to whatever sentence they think is appropriate, basically. But the mandatory ter- minimums don't go away, but the judge is able to say, based, you know, this mandatory minimum may be the proper sentence for this one defendant, but in another case, it may not be, and this is the reasons why, and he can go below the, the right. mandatory Right. That's important minimum. to stress that because sometimes people get the impression that if there's not a mandatory minimum in place, that there's no accountability or punishment whatsoever. And that's not what this is about. It's about putting the judge who's in really the best position to look at the overall circumstances of the case to see what is the appropriate punishment for that person. So that's what right. are the elements of overlap here? There aren't there, any. There aren't any. So okay, that's, well, but you said that's the that you like that one better, but... That's uh, the Justice Safety Valve Act, yes, by Senator Paul and Leahy. Um, the Durbin-Lee bill, it's called the Smarter Sentencing Act. It has a catchier name. Um, it only affects drug offenders, whereas the other bill would apply to anyone facing a mandatory minimum sentence of any kind in the federal sentence uh, system. Um, so it's only drug offenders in the Durbin-Lee um, bill, and it 
basically would cut the mandatory minimum in half. So a 10-year sentence would become five, a five-year sentence would become two. I know that's not half, but, um, and it would increase the safety valve, this earlier provision we got done in 1994, so that more defendants, drug defendants, would benefit from this ability of the judges to have more discretion. Um, so it's it's a different bill altogether. It you know really focuses only on drug offenders. The reason that they're doing that is because that's the low-hanging fruit. There are about 100,000 federal drug offenders in prison right now. So it would have it's not, I mean, I say that, although the bill is not written retroactively at all, so it would be only for those coming into the system in the future. But the, num- the, the large percentage of people that go to federal prison go for, fe- for drug offenses. Tell us about the, the sentencing guidelines and, and how that, where that stands now, where it's likely to go. Well, federal sentencing guidelines were created about the same time that these mandatory minimums for drug offenses were in the the mid-1980s. And the federal sentencing guidelines apply to any federal crime. So anyone convicted of a federal crime um, is going to be subject to these federal guidelines. They are no longer mandatory like they used to be, but they're still followed pretty pretty much by the judges. So there's an effort afoot right now um, to change the guidelines uh, for drug offenders so that it would lower the guidelines by two levels for all drug offenders, and it would reduce their sentences by about 11 months um, on average. And it would affect roughly 6,000 people coming into, fe- into federal prison each year who are, who are serving drug sentences. So, I mean, we are very supportive of that. That's something that is done slightly independently of Congress. They'll send to Congress on May 1st this proposal to change the sentencing guidelines for drugs. If Congress does not act on it, it will automatically become law November 1st. And we are hopeful that they will also make that change retroactive, which would mean that the roughly 100,000 people in federal prison today serving drug offenses would be able to apply for a reduction in sentence. Um, It's been done before, but not quite in those numbers. The last time that something like this happened, it was 20,000 prisoners. So um, it's a possibility. It's just a very good sign. The Attorney General yesterday testified at the U.S. Sentencing Commission in favor of this. So did Right on Crime, a group out of the Texas Public Policy Institute. Um, It, it again, has this wonderful bipartisan support that we've been seeing across the country for sentencing reform. All right, we're going to leave it there. Julie Stewart, founder and president, Families Against Mandatory Minimums, and Tim Lynch, director of the Cato Institute's Project on Criminal Justice. You can uh, follow up on a lot of these issues at the Cato Institute uh, in addition to mandatory minimums, uh, jury nullification, the failed war on drugs, and others. You can find all that at our website, cato.org. Individuals succeed because they're free to associate with each other to achieve shared goals. And where they do fail, there is a cost that they must bear themselves. Governments often, quote-unquote, succeed because there's no price to failure, and programs often continue on their own inertia. The instinct for central planning, says Fox News host John Stossel, is one that is at odds with historical experience of what makes for a prosperous society. He spoke at a Cato luncheon in Naples, Florida, in February. I've come to understand, thanks to Cato, that the market will take care of just about everything better than God. And it's not perfect. There will be the Bernie Madoffs. Um, and we need some personal security as a role for government. But why is life good in America? I have a charity where I buy my... TV programs from ABC, and Fox gives them to me, and we give them to high school teachers, and they use them to teach economics and social studies in high school, and at least introduce the 
markets. And the most popular one is one where I start by asking a group like this, it's high school kids in New Jersey, how come you're doing okay? Seven billion people on Earth, fewer than one are near our level of comfort. Two billion have horrible lives, live on a buck or two a day. How come we did well? And the room is silent. They have no clue. And then a kid will stand up. We have democracy. Or some say, we invented democracy. They don't know about the Greeks. <laughs> Another stood up and said, and we have natural resources. We were a relatively new country, and, and that made us rich. Uh, those are good points, except India has natural resources, and India is a democracy, but India is poor. And they say, well, India is overpopulated, that's why it's poor. But that's because the population density of India is the same as that of New Jersey, where I was talking to these kids. And compare India to Hong Kong, which has no natural resources, and 20 times as many people per square foot as India. And Hong Kong got rich. They never even had democracy. They had the British rulers and now the communist Chinese. And yet they are the, the role model for prosperity. They went from third world to first 50 years. We know what works. It's a crime that the rest of the world doesn't embrace it. What is it? It's economic freedom is part of it and rule of law. I mean, key, the worst places to live are the African country where you're afraid to build a factory because your neighbor may steal what you make, or the dictator may take your whole factory. Uh, so we need that, and then we need economic freedom. In Hong Kong, the British rulers made sure people didn't steal from each other or kill each other, and then they sat around and drank tea. They left free people alone, and free people left alone made themselves rich. One reason is they have fewer rules. I went around the, the world to shoot the story. I tried to open a business in New York. Couldn't do it within two months. In India, I didn't even try because it would have taken time. You had to get 20 permits to buy a computer. But in Hong Kong, I could open a business in one day. Took an hour, I paid a $25 fee. It was a stupid business, but this right to open, to try something, is what allowed them to prosper. And yet, we don't embrace this. Capitalism works, and yet it's vilified in every newsroom I've been in, except the one I'm in now, and at most universities I've visited. People hate business. Somebody came up to me on the street in New York and said, are you John Stossel? Yes. I hope you die soon. And at first I thought this was because he considered me a conservative and, and people had been calling me that. Uh, but I'm a lousy conservative as a libertarian. Those of you who are conservative are right to be furious works that I was the closest thing they had to conservative. And I think drugs should be legal and sex work should be legal and I wasn't crazy about going into Iraq and um, I think gambling should be legal and libertarian. And yet they call me a conservative, and this guy is furious. But I think it's, to be a conservative in New York is like being a child molester. <laughs> but since I'm a conservative, I thought, well, why should they be so mad at me? 
And I came to think it's because I'm a consumer reporter who's now defending laissez-faire. Let business do what it wants, except collude with government. Competition problems. And this offends them. Somehow this is a rape of the poor because as people get rich in business, other people must suffer. They think this way because they don't have an economic education. They think of some game. And there's logic behind that. Politics is a zero-sum game. Somebody wins, somebody loses. Lawsuits are a zero-sum game often. But what they don't realize is that business zero-sum game, because business is voluntary. There are only two ways to do things, right? Voluntary and forced. And government is force. As I say, we need some force. But can force anybody to buy their stuff. And both parties win in every transaction. You see it in the simplest. You bought a cup of coffee this morning, maybe. You gave her the buck, she gave you the coffee. And there was a weird double thank you moment. You both said thank you, thank you, thank you. Why do you both say thank you? Because you wanted the coffee more than you wanted the buck. She wanted the buck more than she wanted the coffee. Because it's voluntary, it doesn't happen unless you both win. So it's not like Bill Gates took a big chunk of pie and we have less. Bill Gates, to get rich, had to bake a bunch of new pies and make us all richer. People don't get that. Instinct says there ought to be central planning. One final example. We take it for granted that you can go to a foreign country and stick a piece of plastic in the wall and cash comes out. And you can plastic to a total stranger who doesn't even speak English, he'll rent you a car for a week. And when you get home to Naples, a Visa or MasterCard will have the accounting correct to the penny. If they don't, you'll scream. Even count votes accurately. <laughs> and yet, majority of American public was willing to turn to government to run health care as well as education. This is not Government fails, individuals succeed, and I thank you for supporting Cato, which fights for that liberty that makes all good things possible. The Federal Reserve Act was signed into law on December 23, 1913. It was designed to provide an elastic currency to prevent banking panics. The Great Depression, the Great Inflation, and the Panic of 2008, however, seriously mar the Fed's record. Kevin Brady is a Republican U.S. representative from Texas. He made the case for a Centennial Monetary Commission at a Cato Capitol Hill briefing in February. I can't think of a better time to be having this discussion than right now. I took over the ways or the uh, Joint Economic Committee a number of years ago for House and Senate Republicans, and uh, my goal was to, to, to revitalize it back into a free market think tank on the economy, on the budget, uh, on how we move forward in economic freedom. Thanks to great staff and good uh, members serving on it, we've had some success in doing that. When I took it over, you know, I, I tasked my economic team with this challenge. If the experts believe the 1800s was the British century, the 1900s was America's century, those same experts predict this century is China's. So. What do we need to do today to make sure that America remains the strongest economy in the world 
through the 21st century? How do we have a second great American century economically? Well, there's no question fiscal policy plays a key role in it. You got to get your taxes right. You got to get your financial house in order. You got to have the right regulatory schemes. No question about it. But what your central bank does, the monetary policy, that's equally important. And that's why at this point in our history, it's critical that we get that right and we reestablish Congress's constitutional role in monetary policy. One is because this economy is so disappointing. This is the weakest economic recovery in half a century. Uh, we're missing, just compared to an average recovery, just compared to a C-grade uh, recovery, we're missing over 5 million jobs, more than a trillion dollars from this economy. Millions of people are, have given up looking for work. Millions more can't find full-time work. And in fact, proportionally fewer adults are working today, today than when the recession ended. We've actually gone backward in that area. So the economy matters in a critical way. The Fed has played a role in that weak recovery. One, by keeping low in, uh, interest rates too low for too long, it contributed to this financial crisis. Secondly, to its credit, it helped calm the water during that crisis. But since then, it's taken on extraordinary actions that, in my view, has boosted Wall Street beautifully, left middle-class America and Main Street behind, uh, punished seniors and savers, uh, created more uncertainty in the marketplace, and have really planted the seeds for future inflation. So at this point, uh, as Jim said, at the 100th anniversary of the Fed, we believe, I believe, it's the perfect time to take a bigger picture look at the Fed and its role going forward. What we envision, and now we have 50 co-sponsors, is a brutally bipartisan commission. Um, uh, established along the lines of the 9-11 Commission um, that would take a look backwards over the first 100 years of the Fed, uh, looking at the Fed's effectiveness in economic output and in job creation, in financial stability, and all those factors of the first 100 years. But more importantly, having an open, thoughtful, constructive discussion on what role they believe the Fed should play in for the next 100 years and to make recommendations to Congress in that area, recommendations that would look at what should the mandate, a clear mandate from Congress to the Fed, what should it be? What are the rules the Fed should use? You know, how, um, uh, how do we uh, keep the Fed from picking winners and losers in the credit uh, uh, marketplace going forward? What is the role of assets, of the gold standard, of nominal GDP targeting, of all those areas uh, that there is good, thoughtful discussions, ideas today. How do we how do we provide a national forum that brings that uh, to the forefront and reminds Congress that indeed we have a role, constitutional role, in identifying those mandates and holding the Fed accountable in achieving them? Um, I think there's room for ideas like mine, as others. Uh, we've introduced the Sound uh, Dollar Act that really refocuses the Fed back on the mandate of price stability, on protecting the purchasing power of the dollar. Uh, there is no, I think, stronger foundation for growth than that. And if you ask, does it matter, uh, I noticed that during QE1 and QE2, as the Fed continued to stimulate uh, Wall Street, what happened is it drove the value of the dollar down. And that in those just so simple two steps, 
they drove the dollar down to the point that you and I were paying 50 cents a gallon more for every uh, gallon of gasoline we bought than we would have without QE1 and QE2. So the role of the Fed had, a, had, in just one instant, had a major impact on our families. Imagine over time, as the value of the dollar decreases, as the value of our hard work decreases through that currency, the impact on our standard of living just as Americans. Um, in that Sound Dollar Act, besides focusing the Fed back on, the, um, uh, on price stability, uh, we moved them out of picking winners and losers in the credit market uh, uh, going forward. Uh, uh, seek to have them unwind the positions they have today. And we seek to broaden the voices on the Federal Open Market Committee that makes these decisions by ensuring that, that uh, all of our regional presidents are voting on that. That breaks the Washington-New York connection in a way and makes sure all the economic voices are heard. Um, we close a slush fund uh, that uh, is operating at the Fed and we accelerate the publication of the transcripts so that the public can see earlier and more closely the decision-making the Fed uh, is. So that clear mandate, holding the Fed accountable, giving them the independence to achieve it, I think is critical. But the point is you may have other ideas on what the role of the Fed should be. Let's have a contest of ideas. The higher ed bubble has been spurred by decades of indoctrination that the path to wealth is higher education and only higher education. Federal subsidies for students and institutions are further inflating the higher ed bubble. But public choice theory predicts that institutions are run for the sake of their operators. Glenn Reynolds, a professor of law at the University of Tennessee, discussed this issue at the Cato Institute's Benefactors Summit in February. My take on all of this, we're in a situation where the problem with everything from kindergarten to postgraduate education is that every year it costs more and every year the return actually goes down. Uh, and my whole take on it is based on uh, a statement of Herb Stein's, uh, sometimes called Stein's Law, uh, which is that when something can't go on forever, it won't. And what, it's, a, it's simple yet powerful. Uh, what can't go on forever and thus won't is education getting more expensive every year with the payoff staying the same or going down. And that's what's happening. In higher education, college tuitions have gone up 440% over the last 25 years. That's more than four times the rate of inflation over the same period and much faster than the growth of family income, which has just barely outpaced the rate of inflation. Uh, that can't go on forever because what's happened is People made up the difference with debt, mostly student loan debt. Back before the housing bubble burst, uh, people often financed juniors' college education with home equity loans. Not so much anymore because to get a home equity loan, you have to have home equity. Um, <laughs> so what can't go on forever? A rise in tuition faster than the rise in household income. And I'm going to talk a little bit about how we've gotten here, uh, what's going on, and what's going to happen after the bubble bursts. And I will stress that it's not all bad news, although the news is probably the worst for people like me, tenured professors who had a very cushy setup over the last several decades. And that is a tragedy. <laughs> well, one of the problems we have with education is the growth of what historically is kind of an un-American idea, which is the idea that you're not somebody unless you've got a college degree. For most of American history, that wasn't true. 
colleges were essentially finishing schools for the rich, training schools perhaps for future uh, ministers and so on, but not in any way seen as something that was essential for respectable middle class people to have gone to. Uh, that kind of changed. The GI Bill led to the idea of college as sort of a passport to the middle class. Uh, and a lot of people went to colleges. Colleges, of course, like rational income maximizers, expanded their enrollment to handle all these incoming GI Bill people. Then as they started to fade out, the baby boomers hit colleges. And that got an extra boost because uh, in the Vietnam era, people went to college in the hopes of getting a draft deferment. This led to a number of eminent U.S. politicians pursuing divinity degrees for an extra deferment. Um, then as that faded out in the 70s, uh, the government came to the rescue with increased student uh, aid. So we got uh, Pell Grants, we got guaranteed student loans, we got a variety of other things that in essence uh, favored people going to college and encouraged them to be fairly insensitive to prices. Uh, and people also thought college was worth it. The conventional wisdom among sort of consumer financial advisors until just the last few years was that college loans were so-called good debt because the expectation of boosted future incomes made it worth borrowing money to go to college. Um, this was true for a while, but with college costs going up much faster than the returns on a college degree, it became less true with each passing year. Uh, we also found employers using college degrees as a signaling tool, especially after the Supreme Court case of Griggs against Duke Power made employer testing of applicants uh, risky. Uh, meanwhile, in the colleges, well, you're all probably familiar with public choice theory, and public choice theory says that institutions are run for the benefit of the people who run them rather than the sensible mission of the institution. Uh, people who run universities are, well, primarily administrators and secondarily faculty. Uh, and what we got was a university system that was optimized for extracting the greatest amount of federal subsidies and the highest welfare for faculty members and administrators. Uh, no, yeah, they tried to teach you some stuff along the way. Uh, so the result was something where faculty uh, members got reduced teaching loads, uh, more time for research. They were rewarded for research to a greater degree than for teaching because that was more important. Uh, that somebody still had to teach the classes though, so we started bringing in low-paid adjuncts and TAs for whom English was often a third language uh, and so on. Uh, actually, one of the interesting things is if you look, you know, people on the left have this sort of Marxist view of exploitation and uh, sort of uh, savage uh, abuse of underlings, and the two places you find this are in the two most leftist uh, parts of the economy, which are Hollywood and higher education. Administration grew even faster than faculty because, let's face it, the people who really run universities are not faculty but administrators. Um, we now have a situation where there are actually more administrators than teaching faculty across the United States and, and many institutions. The imbalance is quite substantial. Uh, a study by the Goldwater Institute from Arizona, which many of you may know, from 2010 found that the growth in administrative bloat was actually the major reason for college tuition increases, uh, the largest one. Uh, from 1983 to 2007, expenditures and employment of administrators rose twice as fast as for teaching faculty. The ideal university from the standpoint of administrators would actually have no faculty or students at all. <laughs> there's a terrific book on this by a Johns Hopkins professor named Benjamin Ginsburg called The Fall of the Faculty and the Rise of the All-Administrative University. Uh, and that is indeed the trend. 
some of this is the fault of federal regulations which encourage administrators to administer them. Uh, a lot of it is also just by the tendency of administrators to measure their own self-importance by how many people report to them. And in fact, again, it makes sense. A university is a nonprofit. There are no shareholders to send excess profits to. Uh, so the administrators who really run the place uh, take money and they say, well, what will make my life better? Well, I can get a higher salary and that's nice up to a point. Uh, I get more people who report to me. That makes me more important and means there are other people to do my work, so I get to do less. Uh, and most of the uh, rise in income to higher education was basically dissipated uh, in terms of increased administration uh, and the like. Uh, also, you had competition for students, which leads to a certain amount of gold plating, fancier dorms, fancier cafeterias, fancier athletic facilities. Uh, being a college student today is a much less Spartan experience in most places. Uh, than it was a generation or two ago. So where are we now? Well, we're now at the point where the cost of a year at a private school costs more than the median family income. And in fact, the cost of an out-of-state public university costs more than the median family income. Uh, and even the cost of an in-state public university, where you're supposedly subsidized, is really pretty high. It's often $30,000 a year or more, which means that a four-year college degree costs into the six figures. And here's the other bad news. Most students don't graduate in four years. In fact, only about two-thirds of students graduate in six years. And there's now reason to think that many of the factors that have enabled this situation are coming to an end. Now, you get a bubble when an asset's price grows faster than its value based on its income-generating potential warrants. And this is what's happening with college. People go to college because they believe a college degree will cause them to earn more in the future. But for many people now, the increase in earnings from a college degree is not sufficient to justify the investment it takes to get the college degree. In fact, there's a funny thing in The Onion. The Onion is a parody site, but it's kind of hard to tell nowadays. Um, and they had a piece about a 30-year-old college graduate who was exulting because he realized he had earned $11 more than he would have if he hadn't gone to college. And that's actually, for some people, a best case scenario because many people at 30 are in fact behind. By the time you take in the foregone income of the four to six years they've spent in college, plus the debt they incurred to go to college, plus the interest on the debt, which is substantial, uh, they're in the hole rather than $11 ahead. Uh, and people are starting to realize that. More than three years after the departure of U.S. combat troops from Iraq, a determined insurgency rages against the government led by Iraqi Prime Minister Nuri al-Maliki. Violence has claimed thousands of lives. So what explains it? Douglas Ollivant, a senior national security fellow, spoke at a Cato Institute event in February about Iraq's ongoing violence. We need to remember that what is happening in Iraq is primarily um, violence by the terrorist group formerly known as Al-Qaeda in Iraq, AQI, which has now morphed in some form to what we call ISIS or ISIL, the Iraqi, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria or Iraq and the Levant. And this violence is primarily directed against <coughs> Shia civilians. Now, there are other flavors of violence. Um, we have neo-Bathist parties in Iraq that are part of the violence. We have other targets 
of ISIS, the government security forces, the more moderate Sunnis, but primarily, a, you know, some percentage of the violence, it's hard to parse, but well above 70%, is from AQI, ISIS, and directed against Shia civilians. And that's important for us to remember. This is not primarily groups of Iraqis fighting each other anymore, as we had in 2007, 2008. This is primarily a radical Islamist terrorist group killing Shia civilians almost exclusively with car bombs. We do have low-level background violence, of course, that occurs. Iraq remains a violent place, and to say that this is just a terrorism problem uh, is not true. But we need to keep this in perspective. Um, according to the Iraq body count in 2012, before the Syrian war really, really kicked up, there were about 4,400 casualties in Iraq, a country of th about 30 million people. As I like to point out, this compares disfavorably with the 500 murder victims that occurred in the city of Chicago with its 2 million population. <clears throat> so we need to keep in perspective what the background violence is in Iraq and how much of this is terrorism related. While the government of Iraq is not perfect, it is not causal of this violence. There are lots of factions who would like to blame all this violence on the Shia government on Prime Minister Maliki in particular, on his policies towards the Sunnis. Lots of people like to describe the Sunnis as disenfranchised, although that's not true. Iraq is one of the countries in the region where the minority sect actually does have political rights, the rights to vote, the right to hold government offices, uh, the right to be in the military, and so on. Um, you can look at other countries in the region and see that that's not true for their minority groups. But again, while the government of Iraq has not been perfect, and I'm not here to endorse or give uh, credence to all their actions, it's simply false to say that that's causal. We could remove, you know, take our magic wand, remove Maliki from office tomorrow, put in a prominent Sunni figure like Ayat Alawi or Salah Mutlaq or one of the new Jafis, make them the prime minister, and this would impact ISIL's calculus not in the least they would continue to send car bombs against Shia civilians because they want a radically different system in Iraq, and simply putting some Sunni in charge would not satisfy them in the least. I think it's important to remain to remember that there are trends in Iraq that, that counter this violence, that there are sources of order inside Iraq that are actually uniquely encouraging. One, of course, remains the oil. It is hard to talk about Iraq without talking about its hydrocarbons, without talking about its oil. Um, in some senses, of course, a resource like this is a problem. We all know the term resource curse. But on the other side, Iraq has the resources, the funding source, to do all kinds of things that it needs to do to one day, as it stabilizes, um, develop a more diversified economy, and in the short term, simply to buy its way out of problems. Um, this is a time-honored tradition in the region. If you're having a problem, you give a leader of this group money, and money can be used to diminish violence and buy political allies. The second, and uh, a little less sordidly, there is an emerging democratic tradition in Iraq. Now, we have not seen this at the central government, admittedly. The politics in Baghdad are messy. They're ugly, primarily because we have three divergent groups with very, very different interests, and it's very, very hard for them to find common ground. 
However, in the provinces, we've now gone through two successful electoral cycles where ballots are counted, the vote is rather uncontroversial, people who were in power, lose, who tried to get another term, do not succeed, are ejected from office and go back more or less peacefully to what they were doing beforehand. Um, for example, in the province of Basra, before the 2009 uh, provincial elections, Badia, the Islamic Virtue Party, um, was the they had the government of Basra, was the governor was from that party. The 2009 elections saw a state of law, Maliki's party, win the Basra elections, and they provided the governor. And then in the 2013, state of law lost the elections in Basra, and there is now a governor with a uh, party called the Citizens Alliance, which is affiliated with ISKI, the party of the Hakims. In all these cases, the, the prior governors are, remain in private life. Uh, I believe both of them are still in Basra, although I'm not confident of that. Um, and, and certainly other people in their, uh, in their political circles are. We have had peaceful transition of power at the provinces, not once, but twice. And uh, this should give us hope about the future of democracy in Iraq. How we deal with failure can tell us a lot about how likely we are to ultimately succeed. Megan McArdle writes in her new book, The Upside of Down, that failure has the ability to teach us as individuals and groups. And the painful lessons from failures big and small are perhaps the most valuable lessons we can learn. McArdle spoke at the Cato Institute in February. I'll start out by talking about uh, the greatest movie disaster of all time. Uh, actually, a lot of you, there's some young folks in here who I'm sure don't remember anything much that happened before about 2005. But for those of us who have a few gray hairs that we're ardently trying to cover with dye, um, this was a movie, giant water movie. Giant, giant water movie. And of course, as you know, if you're a homeowner and you know what happens when like your bathroom floods, just imagine that in a like the kind of construction that you use for a movie set. So like a big wave came along and washed away $8 million worth of their set. It had to be rebuilt. It was, it went drastically over budget. And then they raised the budget and it went over budget again. It was delayed. Uh, the stars were complaining. The media is waiting to pounce, seriously waiting to pounce. Like nine months to a year before it came out, they're just chuckling with glee. They can't control it. They're all what, um, even, in fact, the people internally had started saying things like, if we could just lose $100 million. Uh, even the director who had pushed this has been like his dream project. Uh, finally, by the end, said, I just, I put it in theaters and I just, I already knew. It was going to lose a whole lot of money and my career was going to be over. Um, it debuted in Tokyo and basically no one noticed. <laughs> Everyone was talking about other little uh, mini scandals within Hollywood. Um, and the media started uh, publishing articles to the effect that this was now the most expensive movie disaster of all times, which just goes to show why journalists should never be in charge of greenlighting movies, because Titanic went on to make more money than any movie in history. <laughs> and, and you guys thought I was talking about Waterworld, right? And this is the thing, is that in fact, they're a lot closer than you think. In fact, if you look at the stats, Waterworld had a lot of advantages. For one thing, it had a movie star that someone had heard of. Titanic had Leonardo DiCaprio, who was mostly renowned for playing the mentally handicapped, and Kate Winslet, who had starred in one low-budget movie that no one had ever seen. Um, 
the experience of filming this movie was so grueling that Kate Winslet got pneumonia and they just had to stop production while she recovered. Um, not only that, this was the second time he had done this. Does anyone remember The Abyss? It's now a cult classic. Lost it, When it actually debuted, it lost money and didn't do as well as notable films like Uncle Buck, um, <laughs> where it was, it was substantially beaten by Uncle Buck at the box office. Ed was so grueling that Ed Harris to this day will actually not discuss it. Um, he just like, when reporters ask him, he's like, I don't talk about that. And, threatens to punch them. Um, no, I made that last part up. Anyway, uh, but also, it, Waterworld actually made its release date. So you want to release a big blockbuster basically in the summer uh, because that's when all the teenage boys are out of school. And since teenage boys aren't allowed to drink, what they do is just go to the movies and drag everyone they know and they make their little girlfriends come with them. And so you want a big, if you have a big budget movie like that, it's supposed to come out, biggest weekend is July 4th. Um, Waterworld made its July release date. Titanic, on the other hand, just was so badly overscheduled that they had to slip it and run it at Christmas, which is usually when you wonder you're running like kid, little kid movies, because that's what people do with their kids when they're home from school. <laughs> Titanic picked up an audience no one had expected. Tween Girls. Tween Girls freaked, is that, I mean, people may remember this, there were like Titanic-themed weddings and so forth. Like, Tween girls freaked out about this movie. They went, they went again, they got all their little friends to come, they made all the boys go, and the boys were like, ah, oh, there's kissing, and then the boat sank. They're like, ah, oh, the boat sank. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was, it's actually, you look at the box office for a normal blockbuster, and they make all of their, their, their money in like the first three weeks. People just kept going to see Titanic. They saw it like 13, 14, 15 times. This is the kind of pattern you used to see with like Star Wars. No one had predicted this. No one had seen this coming. And it was basically the biggest box office ever until James Cameron outdid himself with, with Avatar. Um, we like to think that there's a plan. We like to think that, that failure comes when you didn't prepare enough or you were just not being smart in some way or you're a bad person and you did something bad and that's why you failed. But if you actually look out in the marketplace, that's not what you see, right? So let, let me talk to you about a product that was really well planned. So old soft drink company, They've got a hot young competitor, not even that young, but like in the soft drink market, it's not that big. So they've got a competitor coming up on their, their back and Coke is really frightened because Pepsi is now, take the Pepsi challenge and everyone is buying Pepsi. And so they think they need to do something because they're about to lose their number one position. So they get their like brain trust in and the brain trust says, well, you know, Coca-Cola was invented in the 1890s and it tastes like an 1890s soft drink. Maybe we just need to change it. So they decide that maybe what they should do is, uh, replace it with a newer, sweeter, uh, without the kind of lemony undertones that new Coke, that old Coke has. So they're gonna do a new Coke. And it's not entirely clear why they felt they needed to get rid of old Coke in order to do this, rather than just introduce a second Coke. Uh, but they're understandably a little bit nervous about this. So they go out and they, uh, they market test. They do the biggest market research study ever done. And the results come back, they're like, you would, people love this stuff, they can't wait to get their hands on it. It's amazing, go. And the head of the company is only says, do it again. So they go out and they do the biggest market study in history again. <laughs> they do more market research than anyone has ever done, multiple times. And it all comes back saying, New Coke is gonna be the greatest thing since sliced bread. We need but put it into stores for consumers to just rush the shelves, grab it all and take it home with them. And it went on the market and it lasted only a matter of months and nearly just on the company with it. It's not because the people at New Coke were, at, at Coke were stupid. They're not, they're, they, you don't get to be the owner 
of the largest and most successful brand in the history of humanity by just being a bunch of morons who do any random thing that comes into your head. They weren't. The problem is that the question that they wanted to, that you want to ask before you go in with a new product is never the question that you can actually answer. So the question you want to ask is, when I make this product and I put it on the shelves, are people going to buy it? And are they going to keep buying it? The only question you can ask is something like the question that the new Coke market research people did, which is, if I go to a supermarket and give people a three ounce free sample of this, will they tell me they like this better than Pepsi or Old Coke? It's not the same question. It's not even that close to the same question, but it's the best you can do. The universe is inherently an uncertain place. We like to think that we can plan our way around failure, that we can engineer it out of the system somehow, but as we just saw with the financial crisis, this is a great thing. I started as an economics reporter in 2003, and I was writing about something called the great moderation. <laughs> yeah, some of you, I see the laughter in the audience, right? This was the idea that the Fed was so good at its job that we were never going to have a financial crisis again. We had figured it out. We were so smart that it was now not possible. Um, oops. <laughs> like, <laughs> the, the most dangerous place you ever are is when you think that you have engineered away the possibility of failure. Because not only have you not done that, you are also not prepared for anything to go wrong. So what happened with, with Coke, they took it, what, what people hadn't realized was that the, it wasn't like, do you want to drink this or do we want to drink this in a three-ounce sample? And by the way, a, a sweeter drink is always just going to get more people to say, I want it, if you give it to them in a free sample, unless it's actually like, you know, syrup. Um, but that's not the same as wanting to drink a whole can of it or wanting to buy a bunch, but mostly what they hadn't thought about was that people might like new Coke, but they didn't like it when it cost them the option of old Coke. And suddenly they realized they loved old Coke. Maybe they didn't want to drink it all the time, but they wanted to have it. It was, you know, it's like, you don't want to find out, you just can't go to Slovakia. Maybe you've never been, and maybe you aren't planning a trip anytime soon, but if someone was just like, never, you can never go to Slovakia, you would be upset. Um, and so actually the interesting thing is that this turned out to be great for the company. It was great, they had done something dumb, which is they'd bet the farm, but then they did something smart, which was that they pulled this thing off the shelves, put Old Coke back as quickly as they could, and it turned out that like this actually revitalized the brand because people were reminded how much they loved Old Coke. They booked their ticket to Slovakia and, and, and took that option that they'd almost lost. Um, it strikes me when I, when I read stories about entrepreneurship in magazines that all of the stories are like, genius inventor, Genius, he had a genius idea, and he's been a hardworking fellow and kind of brilliant all his life, and he just went out and did this brilliant thing, and it was brilliant, and everyone loves it, and now he is standing with his arms crossed on the cover of a business magazine staring at the camera, right? Um, but then when you actually talk to a lot of entrepreneurs, it's completely not the impression that you get of how the economy works. The impression that you get is the guys who are like, yeah, so we started this company, and we totally thought we were going to do this one thing, and it turned out no one wanted that, but Accidentally, we figured out that this other thing was really great and people loved it and now that's what we do for a living. Or we started this one thing and it was totally great and people loved it but there was no revenue model and then we went out of business. Um, and that's what most entrepreneurs do, right? Like if you, if you take a group of people, in one study, you take a group of people with, um, they've started a successful business before, they have good VC backing which means that they're not gonna run into an imminent cash crisis. Um, and they've got a pretty sound business, and also means that they've got a pretty sound business plan. Three times out of 10, those people will succeed. Seven times out of 10, their business will flop. They're basically like baseball players, right? Like a great batter is a guy who fails seven out of 10 times at the plate, and that's pretty much the track record for a great entrepreneur. Most things don't work, and it isn't because 
people are stupid, it's because the universe is uncertain. A realistic model of the universe is the universe. Anything smaller than that, you've got to have some simplifying assumptions, and you don't know if your simplifying assumptions are wrong. There's just no way to get around that. And so what is actually the way to entrepreneurial success, to economic success? It's iteration and experimentation. There's a great guy who's the head of user experience for Palm. He goes and does this test with uh, a bunch of different groups of people. 25 strands of spaghetti and a roll of tape make me the tallest structure that's capable of supporting an egg. Now, a lot of you have probably done some sort of team building exercise similar to this, but he wasn't interested in like whether people bonded and wore t-shirts and screamed the company cheer at the end of the day. He was interested in how they, who did better and why. So some of the people are what you would expect. Singaporean engineers do very well on this challenge. Uh, some of the people who don't do well are also who you would uh, uh, suspect. MBAs are like absolutely the worst. <laughs> Apparently they spend all, we spend all of our time uh, arguing about who's gonna be like in charge of writing the vision statement for Team Spaghetti. And, and don't laugh, because lawyers don't do well either. <laughs> um, but here, the most successful group is not Singaporean engineers, it is kindergartners. And like you look at these things, the things the engineers build, it's like the Eiffel Tower. The things that the, the Singaporean engineer, the little kids build, it's like, right? Totally, they look like what happens when you give a team of kindergartners some spaghetti and some tape. Uh, so how did they succeed? Iteration and experimentation. So first of all, they're five, so they don't have any rules. They're the only group that asked for more spaghetti. <laughs> and with that, but what they did with the spaghetti is what's really powerful. They just started experimenting. And they ruthlessly called what didn't work, right? If it didn't work, they threw it away and started over. Take that piece off, that, didn't, that made things worse, not better. And with that process of what Silicon Valley calls failing fast, <laughs> they actually got the best result. That is how evolution works, it's how the economy works, and it's frankly how most learning works. If you think about how you learn to play tennis, right? You don't learn to play tennis by developing an elaborate theory of tennis ball physics. If that were true, then like every year Wimbledon, right, would be won by some guy from MIT who is the world's best fast physicist, but that's not the case. You learn to play tennis by hitting the ball and most of the time it doesn't do what you think it will, right? But then a couple of times it sort of goes in the right direction. And over time, your brain learns from doing that, those rare things, that's how I should hit the ball. And you do it over and over and over. It's also how we learn to do math, right? Oh yeah, those five ways I tried to do algebra didn't work. Apparently this one way the teacher told me about. Um, but in fact, like, why do you learn from doing problem sets over and over and over again? Because it's that repetition and trying things that don't work and calling the many, many, many ways there are to do things wrong. There's a story about Thomas Edison, which may be apocryphal, but it's a great story, that after he had spent years mucking around with light bulb filaments, trying everything from bamboo to cotton to, and getting nowhere, uh, that someone asked him, so how does it feel to have failed? He said, what do you mean failed? I know 10,000 things that do not make good filaments for incandescent light bulbs. And we laugh, and a lot of his contemporaries and later critics have said, well, if he'd had more theory and less like brute force, he would have been a better inventor. Except Thomas Edison was an amazing inventor, right? Like this guy had an amazing number of patents, and yes, there were lots of people working in his lab, but they were basically using this brute force, try, fail, try, fail, try, fail technique. Libertarians are good at this, right? This is actually, Libertarians are good at letting things fail. We like letting things fail. We get happy when a company lets, when the government lets a company go bankrupt, right? Um, one thing I think we could spend a little more time talking about is what happens afterwards, though. 
Not like we're bad on this, but it actually matters a lot. It's not just enough to say like, mama bird is throwing you out of the nest, fly, right? If it plummets, you don't just leave it there and wait for a wolf to eat it. Um, something has to happen to allow people to recover from failure. And this matters for two, two reasons. Um, the first reason is that if it, failure is really costly, people won't do it. Right? If getting fired meant that you automatically lost your house and all your friends and they took your children away, then probably you would be really, really conservative in your work and spend all of your time thinking about how not to get fired instead of maybe how to create value for the company. Um, also matters because when, you, when things fail badly, you tie up the most precious thing we have, which is human capital. You think about the number of hours and the amount of money that, that our parents invested in each of us. It's a phenomenal investment. Each of us represents an incredible investment of technology and effort and financial capital just to get us to the point where we're reasonable adults capable of functioning in the modern world. Every time that someone fails badly, we take all of that human capital and we throw it away. So it's really, really important to think about how do we recover lost human capital from a failure? And America's often very good at this. You talk to European executives about what happens to them when they work for a company that goes, if, if they say go off and start a business that fails, and they say, I can't do that because who would want to hire me? You talk to, I was just talking to the CFO of a company that went under in 2000, and he was like, I was really worried that that would happen because he'd never been in the startup world before. It's just kind of random, ended up as the CFO, and then it went badly and he didn't have a job anymore. And he went out and people were like, this is great. You learned on someone else's dime. You have a lot of valuable information. And failure is, because as I say, failure is how we learn. Failure is a lot of valuable information. And America's really good at this in the business world. We're not so good at this with the prison system. We're much worse than Europe or almost anywhere else with the way that we have taken two million young men and basically made them unemployable um, and wrecked their lives. I mean, I'm not saying that like, they didn't do anything wrong. Most of the people in prison have done things that they shouldn't have done. Um, but it's still a phenomenal waste both of, I mean, it's a phenomenal waste for them because each human being is incredibly precious. It's also a phenomenal waste for society because those are all people who could be contributing and aren't. Um, but so like I'll close by saying that we want to think about how, how, we, how we let things fail, how we, how we help people pick themselves up afterwards. Um, and, I have an entire chapter in the book dedicated to what I think is actually the unsung hero of the American economy, which is bankruptcy. Because we're really good at this with the bankruptcy system. The American bankruptcy system is really unique. Um, and most people don't realize this, is that the American bankruptcy system is by far the most generous in the entire world, both on the corporate side and on the personal side. It's so, it's so generous that in the, when I was covering our draconian 2005 bankruptcy reform, which I opposed, but not for the normal reasons of, um, when I was covering it for The Economist, I was trying to describe what the new law said. My colleagues were like, well, of course you have to reform that. That's outrageously lax. And I was like, no, this is the draconian new law. The old one was even easier. The idea that you can just walk into a judge and be like, "Borrow a bunch of money, I don't have it. And the judge is like, okay, well, too bad. Debt discharged. Like, that's crazy to people. I was interviewing a guy for a completely different section of the book, a Russia expert. He's Scandinavian, and he just randomly started making fun of the American bankruptcy system in the middle of the interview um, and how ridiculous it is. You just walk in and be like, judge, I don't have any money, and judge is like, okay, that's too bad. 
bye bye creditors, bye bye debt. That seems crazy to people. And yet, if you actually look at research, what you see is that states, because uh, in America, we vary by state and how much money you can shield from creditors. States that have more lax, more generous exemptions have more entrepreneurship. It matters a lot how we help people pick themselves up. So how do we think about failure shouldn't not hurt? And that's the kind of the mistake that a lot of European unemployment systems have made, for example, right? The idea that failure should just not be painful. And so what you see in those systems is that people will spend 10 years trying to be a steel worker in a region where there's no longer any steel foundries. And they're just kind of waiting until someone opens a steel foundry because they don't want to go out and do the brutal and unpleasant work of finding another job doing something else, especially if they're 50 years old and have a lot of capital accumulated in that. You're enabling people to make a rational short-term decision because I've been unemployed long-term and it's really terrible. And job search is the worst part of that. It feels awful to go out and be like, hey, want to reject me? And people are like, yes. Um, <laughs> So it shouldn't not hurt, because the pain is nature's way of saying, don't do that. That doesn't work. Stop. Uh, if it didn't hurt, we wouldn't stop. But you don't want the pain to be crippling the way that, say, a felony sentence now is for people, where once they get out, they're pretty much unemployable, and they might as well go back to being criminals, because their alternative is maybe a, a minimum wage job. And when you look at like the success stories that come out of prison now, a distressingly high percentage of them, as far as I can tell, nearly all of them are people who are working like in a prison rehabilitation thing. You're not seeing people actually transition from, I committed a felony when I was 24 to now I'm a successful something. And there's a lot of professions that won't let them in at all. Um, that's a problem. So how, how should the pain look? It should look short. It should be short. It should not drag on for years. It should be sharp because it should hurt, even if it's not your fault. Unemployment should be unpleasant. Not because you were necessarily did something wrong to be unemployed to, in getting unemployed. Lots of people are laid off because their company is doing badly. It should be unpleasant because otherwise people won't try to leave it. And in the long run, you look at studies, being unemployed is just miserable. It's miserable in Scandinavia. It's miserable in Germany. It's not miserable because of the financial privation. It's miserable because it deprives you of an important place in society. Um, it should be in the context of a relationship that you know, you're a member of society, we want to restore you to society if that's at all possible. I mean, if you're a crazy serial killer who cannot be allowed out, that's one thing, but that describes such a, I mean, you know, it's not even worth making public policy about, right? That's like 100 people in the country. Um, and it should encourage you to move on. It should be about the future and not about the past. Cato University returns to the West Coast this summer. Join us July 27th through August 1st for one of Cato's premier educational programs. It will be held at the beautiful Rancho Bernardo Inn, just a few miles north of San Diego. For more information on Cato University, visit cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.